Imagine stepping foot into a new place where you know the odds are stacked against you. So just think, you know, job, think evangelism, conversation, think about the folks you want to minister to at work. Let's take work, for example. You know that there in the office, the culture of work is cutthroat. You might know you have the least amount of work experience. And in fact, you wonder how you even got the stinking job. And of course, you know that God has placed you there in order that you might be faithful and evangelize others. And just when you feel like you you're getting the hang of things, you have a sneaking suspicion that people are talking behind your back. You know, your coworkers are looking down at you and you know that somehow you've become you've gotten out of favor with the folks you're trying to work with. I mean, what do you do? What do you do with those people or, or in the situation where you know that people that you're trying to evangelize to, they look down on you? Now, you guys are in these situations regularly. How do you get back into favor with these folks? How do you win over your hearers? How do you establish a good relationship with these people? Well, a young pastor, his name is Timothy, he was in such a situation. There were a number of things working against this young pastor, this young man. The struggling church, for example, there were false teachers that had arisen to positions of leadership. They were teaching false doctrine. They were preying on women. And on top of that, they seemed to be they seemed to look down on such a young pastor. Today, we actually see what Paul's plan for Timothy is, what God's plan for Timothy is. Please turn in your Bibles to first Timothy chapter four, verses 11 to 16. We see here God's prescription for a successful ministry. First Timothy chapter four, verses 11 to 16. The apostle Paul here, he wrote this letter to Timothy and he charged him to steady the ship of the church in Ephesus. More specifically in chapter four, Paul writes to Timothy wanting to steady him, the pastor. So not only did the ship need steadying, Timothy himself needs steadying. And he does this by holding out the tasks that were to be high priority on his list of to-dos. So here it's like God is marking, okay, you got a bunch of to-dos. Let me just show you which ones are of utmost priority if you are to have a successful ministry and then to steady the ship. Look there in verse 11. Paul says, command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth. But set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and and your hearers. So put yourself in Timothy's shoes. You can see how you can see here why this is a bad situation, at least humanly speaking. He is charged to, to steady the ship. He's charged to teach against the false teachers. I mean, that in and of itself, I mean, imagine if there are false teachers here and you are charged to teach against them. He's wrestling with the false teachers. He's putting out fires from the false teaching themselves. So he has to go around cor correcting. And then on top of that, here, 
look in verse 11, Paul says, let no one despise you for your youth. So personally, there, there's, there's issues here. The church is probably looking down on this young man and, he, and they're doing so while he's supposed to go around to do this great work. Timothy was a relatively young man, probably in his 30s. And Paul plainly addresses, addresses what might stand in the way of his pastoral ministry. He says, command these things, teach these things, lay these things out before the brothers. He says, but what stands in his way, at least in his hearer's opinion, is his youthfulness. I'm in my sort of mid-30s, almost late 30s, but I would fall into this category here of youthfulness. Uh, biblically this word here is used for little children it could be used for teens it could also be used for folks in their 30s now some of us come from cultures uh where you know you might still be considered a youth even if you oh until you have children so you could be 50 years old you could still be considered a youth Uh, but once you get children or something like that then you might be considered something like an adult so we kind of understand what's going on here people are looking down on him for his youthfulness but he says there let no one despise you for being young. Even though he ministers to people maybe twice his age, so much more experience, maybe even in some aspects, so much more wisdom, he says, don't let them despise you for being young. And so we can understand here, we might be a little timid if we were like Timothy. Timothy, actually in 2 Timothy 1.7, uh, Paul says, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So chances are, Timothy was known for actually his fear. He was known for his timidity. And so Paul encourages him. Let me, let me tell you what you ought to focus on, even if you do fear. What, would, what do you think the world's answers to Timothy's leadership challenges would be? What are your, your challenges if you find yourself trying to minister to a group of people that maybe are looking down upon you? What would the world's answers be? They might say, in order to get the respect you want, this is leadership concerns, leading. It says, even if you are timid, you just project. Just project yourself. Give, give off an air of confidence and people will follow you. They're not going to question you. You know, all the, the, list of, uh, the list of names that Oscar read. <laughs> Those are some really difficult names. And I've been in the position where I've needed to, to read like a whole entire list and I don't really know the I don't really know the uh, how I'm supposed to pronounce these words, but you just you know the, the, uh, conventional wisdom would say you just read it with confidence and people are going to say, man, that guy's smart, he knows what he's talking about. That's what they would say. Maybe just project the air of confidence. People begin to follow. If you don't know the answer, just give an answer confidently. And you'll win your followers over. They might say, okay, spend your time politicking and figuring out who the right leaders are. Then you can sway the whole entire group and get them to yes. Get them to do what you want. You can even ostracize those who are against you. And soon those folks are going to leave. People may even encourage a young leader to force their will upon the people that they're trying to lead. Then you are king of the castle. But in a church, though, where Christ is king, we know that those answers don't solve anything. The Christian pastor and the Christian in general is a servant of God, as we've seen in the past, a servant of Christ Jesus. So the world may have all of their solutions for gaining respect and earning the right to be heard. 
But in the kingdom of God, where a church is an embassy of God here on earth, the solutions are drastically different. And I hope you understand it's actually incredibly freeing here if we find ourselves being looked down upon or something like that, like Timothy might have been there. So application for you guys, if you're a Christian and you're ministering to someone and you and you want to know what to focus on here, you might be experiencing some difficulties at the workplace. What ought you to focus on? This chapter here will be really useful. This section here is really useful. And it brings us to the first point there. The first point, the first to do of successful ministry is be godly. You want successful ministry, be godly there in verse 12. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. The first to do, be godly. Paul calls him here to be an example of godliness. Now, I know that many of you guys uh, are in our uh, First Corinthians Bible studies there, and we're going through, you know, I, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, and there's divisions in the church because these people are saying, I follow this guy, this guy is my disciple, he is my example. Paul rebukes the church there in that situation because it's creating factions and they're proud. But here, there is a very, there is a very real sense in which we ought to be able to say, that some man or some woman is our example. So Paul, with all boldness, can say in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So at some point in time in our Christian life, in our Christian walk, we ought to be able to say, look, you imitate me insofar as I imitate Christ. That's what Paul's encouraging Timothy here. And keep in mind, this is God's design for maturity in Christ. He says, look, if you guys want to grow in maturity, what I want you to do is you find a godly example and you who are godly, you guys become examples, which is why parents are supposed to instruct their children and be an example. It is why, uh, let's say, our Sunday school teachers, our nursery workers are actually supposed to be an example for others to follow. And it's why elders and pastors are to do the same here. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. He's supposed to be godly. He's supposed to set an example. You know, if we keep in mind the context that Timothy was in, how there's a lot of things stacked against him, you really see the power of godliness, don't you? And and if you meditate on it, I think it becomes more and more stark, the solution here to this challenge. Be godly. Right? So typically, if you've ever fallen out of good graces with someone or out of favor with someone, You know, you really want to love them. You want to share the gospel with them. You want to have an effective ministry. Oftentimes you try and get back into favor with them. So this might be some of your guys' relationships, like with you and your husband or with you and your wife or with you and your children. You want to get back into favor, let's say, with your children who might be ticked off at you. But here he says, look, no, that's not the solution. He says the first solution is you be godly. You want a successful ministry among the flock, at work, amongst your spouse, your children. You show them how to be godly. Set an example or a pattern. You see the power of godliness here. So godliness is the answer, the solution, the water that extinguishes the fire of judgmentalism. So being despised, that's the solution. Go and be godly if people are despising you or judging you. It's like he's supposed to display the characteristics of heaven 
And his watchers are supposed to say, wow, that's really something different there. Displaying the very characteristics of heaven, and that's what's supposed to lead the church in reform or pave the way for a successful ministry. No wonder Paul spent so long detailing the characteristics that church leaders ought to have in an earlier chapter. He's looking at, you guys remember that? He's looking at characteristics of the elders, characteristics of the deacon. He spends a long time there. It's because these people are supposed to lead by example. They're supposed to lead in speech and conduct. So what I say and then also how I act, the matters of the heart there, love and faith. So matters of belief and then matters of purity, which includes, you know, sexual conduct here. And oftentimes these would be the things that young people are looked down for, right? In terms of speech and conduct, oftentimes they're lacking in self-control. You say things you ought not to say. You do things that are quite immature. When it comes to love, you know, you might be dedicated to loving yourself instead of loving the people you you really want to minister to. In terms of faith, you might be unsteady in the faith. In terms of purity, we might be known for immorality rather than morality. So if you are in your youth, however you guys want to define youth, if you are in your youth, it is true that you're going to be despised. Let's say you're ministering to a family member who's of the older generation. You too have a solution from Paul the Apostle from this passage. You yourself have a solution from Paul writing under the inspiration of the Spirit. He says, don't worry about gaining their approval. Don't worry about gaining their approval. Instead, you strive to set an example in speech, conduct, law, faith, and purity. Let godliness lead in your efforts of reformation in the church, of evangelism, befriending others. I mean, so many times we underestimate the power of a godly example, don't we? I mean, just imagine, let's say, if a 12-year-old came up to you a 12-year-old who's genuinely born again. A brother or sister who's on passion for, passionate for the Lord. He comes up to you and he says, you know what? I've been praying for you. So whether you are 80 years old or 25, how would you feel if that 12-year-old said, I prayed for you this morning? Would you not be really encouraged by that? Would you not also be a little rebuked if a 12-year-old came up to you and said, He was praying for us. I mean, whoever it is that you're wanting to minister to, people in this church, whether mom or dad at home, or grandma, your cousins, your next door neighbors, set an example of godliness. Take, uh, let's take the, the realm of the home, okay? I just got a few practical examples. Realm of the home. In the area of speech and conduct, how can I set an example? Well, how about this? When you sin, actually apologize. Now, a lot of us come from situations where we know, without a doubt, we didn't grow up saying sorry. We know that, th- that that's not our background. And so we, there might be the temptation to say, oh, well, we just don't do that in this house. So I'm not going to do it. Let me encourage you not to slack off and say, I don't need to do that. But instead, follow Jesus, confess your sin, and apologize to those you've actually sinned against. And that actually shows them, wow, this person here is humble. He puts pride aside and he actually acknowledges where he's wrong and he asks for forgiveness. That sets a beautiful example to the older generation. How about love? Let me encourage you young folks, however you might define young, look for ways to love the older generation. 
Pick up extra chores around the house in effort to show love. Ask your parents how you can be of help. So today when you're driving you know, back home, let's say if you live with your parents, ask your parents, give them a call, say, hey, would you like me to pick up anything from the grocery store in effort to love you and serve you in ways that I can? When it comes to the spiritual and seeking to love them, have you ever considered them let, considered letting them know that you've been praying for them? You know, these are folks that we live with and folks that hopefully we would be praying for, but oftentimes we're not letting them know that we're actually praying for them. Praying that they would love Jesus, praying for peace in the midst of a difficult situation, praying that they would trust in Jesus Christ. Tell them that you are praying for them. In matters of faith, why don't you bring up what you've been reading in your devotions? Or you can talk about what you are learning here at church. How God has blessed you through his word. Any new insights that the Lord has given you. You take the initiative to bring those things up with your parents or of the older generation that you're trying to reach out to. Hopefully, it'll stimulate some good, solid conversation. And even when it doesn't, it helps us trust the spirit that it's he who works. Next one, purity. Have you guys, young folks, and then older folks, if you're trying to set an example, have you ever considered talking about your struggles to your parents ever you ever think about sharing your victories that have been given to you by the grace of god why don't you try today even to share your struggle with your parents appropriately speaking so let's say you struggle with lust why don't you share how you struggle with lust with your parents even if they struggle with lust, even if they're non-Christians and you're coming to dad and mom and saying, look, this is what I struggle with and this is how I'm battling it and this is how I understand lust according to scripture. This is what Jesus wants of my life. You know what they're going to say? They're going to say, wow, this guy's taking things really seriously. And even if they think that you guys are morons because you actually want to struggle with it, then actually you're representing Jesus Christ and his holiness and his purity to people who might not understand it. Share your struggles with the older generation. Friends, do not discount the power of a godly example. Timothy here, he's not, he was not to fix his attention on earning the church's favor, but commending Christ through his example, through his pattern. Concern yourself with dressing in the very characteristics of heaven. Purity, godliness, holiness. We move now to the second to do for successful ministry. The first is be godly. The second is be committed to the word. Be committed to the word. This is Paul's charge to Timothy. Look there in verse 13. He says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. So what Paul did as a missionary, what he would do is he would go around to various places. He would start churches and then he'd move on to the next city. And then hopefully, by God's grace, he would get the if he got the chance to go back on, let's say, another missionary journey, he would return to these churches and strengthen them and then go to other towns as well. In this situation, he left Timothy in Ephesus, which is why he said, and then Paul goes on and then Paul writes to him and says, until I come. So Paul fully intends to go back to the church in Ephesus to, to join forces with Timothy to strengthen the church there. And he says, until I come, you do this. Yes, I know that there are false teachers. I know that people are against you. I know that you might be despised, but you do this. You be godly and you be devoted 
to the word of God. Devote yourself to the word. The false teachers, they were also devoted to other things there. They were devoted, as it says earlier in chapter four, to the teachings of demons. They were devoted in chapter one. You can read there. It talks about how they were devoted to endless genealogies, myths, discussions, things that are so fruitless. But he says, look, you want to be fruitful. You devote yourself to the right things. If you guys have ever found yourself in a situation where you need to minister to someone who's straying, let's say they've imbibed of some sort of false teaching and they're sort of going astray. Uh, you know that oftentimes it's kind of hard to determine what the right things are in those situations. So what it might look like in Timothy's situation, it would be like, oh my goodness, I really need to know those endless genealogies so that I can bring the word of God to bear on what they're saying. Or let's say the new perspective on Paul, redefining justification. Oh, I really need to know the new perspective on Paul so that I can recapture the right understanding of justification. Or let's say, you know, people believe that they can actually reach perfection here in this world, being free from some sort of conscious sin. And then so we need to think, oh, we got to study perfectionism in order to maintain what is right. But here, Paul actually doesn't say that. It's not that those things are unimportant. Those things are important. But he says, look, you want to do something that's of primary importance. You devote yourself to the word of God. That's Paul's solution here. The main thing for a pastor is that he be devoted and committed to the word of God. The public reading of scripture to exhortation and to teaching. You know, we here at uh, First Baptist Church, we strive and we seek to be devoted to these things. So in our services, we publicly read the word of God and we're going to preach and teach the word of God in our services. Um. It is, after all, you know, God's divine words, his personal words to us. He speaks. And so to hear God, to, sorry, to hear and heed God's word is to hear and heed God himself, which is why we want to give time to doing this. So in our services, we read the word, we sing the word, we pray the word. So Oscar today, as he read Nehemiah there, he's praying through Nehemiah as well as our passage today. We're praying through the word. We're hearing the word preached. And then we even get to see the truths of God's word in the gospel through the Lord's Supper and baptism, celebrating his death and his resurrection. So in terms of the flow of the service here, this is how we are dedicated to the reading of the word and the preaching and teaching of God's word. We begin our service with a call to worship officially where we come to God humbly, quieting ourselves in a humble position and listening to the divine word given to us as God calls us to worship. We hope that our songs are filled with the word of God. We're going to be reading scripture and hopefully here in this Nehemiah passage, we see a similar theme in the opposite Testament. So right now we're in the New Testament. So our scripture reading oftentimes is in the opposite Testament that hope that uh, and hopefully there we be grabbing a text that conveys the same exact theme. And then, of course, we come to the preaching of the word, the central piece of this service, the preaching and teaching of the passage that is First uh, Timothy four. So what we seek to do here is just take the word of God, the section that we're looking at and take the main point and unfold that to the congregation. So we're just I hear I'm just a conveyor of God's word here. And hopefully all of the elements of the service would move towards revealing what God has already revealed or a re-revealing 
you could say it. That's why we sing songs like, Speak, O Lord. We're crying out to God that He alone would actually do the speaking here. You know, some people say, you know, let's just keep in mind our visitors. Uh, We don't want to read too much of the Bible, nor do we want to preach too long. It'll turn people away. There, you know, the word is almost seen like the unsightly, the yucky wart on the face of the church that is so offensive. And so what you do is you cover that thing up and make sure people, the visitors don't see the word. Covering up that thing or people will never draw near. But friends, that's that couldn't be farther from the truth. It is God's word. Actually, that doesn't draw people near his word saves. So in, in James 1 it says of his own will, he brought us forth by, of the word of truth. Peter says we are born by this word. We see in scripture that his word sanctifies Jesus said in John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So it makes us holy here. And then God's word revives. Psalm 19, verse 7, the law of the Lord revives the soul. And there in the passage of Nehemiah, what's so awesome there is that finally the Jews were allowed to go back and to worship in their own land. They're going to rebuild the temple. And what do they do? They gather there. Go, go ahead and read Nehemiah 8 later on. Uh, have a second devotion. In the afternoon. But what do they do? They, they all gather together. And the word is read. They even build a little platform. The word is read. The law of Moses there. And they give the sense. That's what Nehemiah uh, 8 verse 8 says. They read the word. And then they give the sense. They're just unfolding the meaning of scripture. And that is actually what revives. You can think of Hilkiah in Second Kings 22. The, the word of God is like. You know, off to the side, it's hidden. It is lost. Somehow, the word of God was lost. And then Hilkiah, he says, I have found the word of God. And then Josiah is kind of like amazed, like, whoa, there's this word of God. Let's read it. And then that leads to revival in Israel there. So if the word saves, if the word sanctifies, and if the word revives, then to neglect the reading and preaching of the word in public worship is to keep people from salvation. If it does all those things, then to neglect the word is to keep people from salvation. So that's why we want to simply unfold the word every single Sunday. Expositional preaching. So we see that by the design and power of God, the word accomplishes. The word accomplishes. And we want to be known for preaching the word, just as Timothy was to be known for doing that. Just as the church's Ephesus, the church at Ephesus was to be known for doing that. So we too want to be known for doing this. There is power in the word, and so we preach it. Without the, without the word of truth, the church draws to a standstill. People would remain unsaved, unsanctified, unrevived. Right? So forget Forget other solutions for health here. We preach Christ crucified in the church. Because God has spoken. Now, if you're visiting with us and you know yourself not to be a believer, you know, you guys might think this is a little weird. Uh, And we love to continue talking about why you, you might think it's a little weird, because we as Christians prize the word because we actually think these are the very words of God. That tell us the way to salvation. And so we want to be dedicated to this. It provides everything for life and doctrine. So friends, know that the reason why we do what we do 
is because we believe that these are the very words of God who created us. So would we not want to be listening to the God who created us to find our purpose and our drive and the meaning for life and how we ought to be living in good communion and right relationship with this very God? And what's in here is it lays out the grand plan of redemption. Genesis chapter 3, God's creation, God's uh, created people, Adam and Eve, they sin, they rebel against him. That's in Genesis chapter 3. And everything else that follows after Genesis chapter 3 paints the picture of how God, in his grace and his love and his mercy, is going to undo what Adam did. And it reaches its climax there as Christ takes on flesh, as it says in 1 Timothy 1.15, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So where man was born into sin and genuinely earned for themselves a just condemnation and punishment, which the Bible says is ultimate in hell, God, by his grace and mercy, says, look, you create the problem. I'm going to give you a solution. And so he sends Christ to take on flesh, to live a perfect life and to bear the wrath that we deserved in order that we might be free. Christ came into the world. Why is that? In order to save sinners. And that's what the word unfolds. And that's what we are to preach. That when people repent of their sins, when they turn from their sins and believe on God, their creator, their savior, come to rescue them, they can be forgiven of their sin, put in a right relationship with God, adopted into his family, saved. The Bible is not a book of law code. The Bible is certainly not a book of myth, as myth experts will happily tell you that. This here contains the way to salvation. Salvation comes through hearing and believing the word of God, the gospel. So if you know yourself not to be a believer, the question then is for you is, why would you reject this word? Why would you say, yes, I know that the Lord, the creator himself has laid out a plan for salvation. Why would you choose to go away from it if God indeed has spoken? God calls you to repent and believe, to turn from your sin and believe on him and you will indeed be saved. You can see the, the, why there's so much value in preaching the word, right? Why God commands Timothy to, to dedicate himself to the public reading, to the exhortation, to preaching and to teaching of this word. Because it's through this word that people are saved. Hearing and believing. When we ditch this, we neglect souls. You know, with such a powerful and blessed message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you would figure that there is boldness for all sorts of ministry, isn't there? Or wouldn't there be? Boldness for ministry. But again, when we think about our own situations, we know that sometimes we are not too bold, even though the message is powerful. And that's because of sin. If it weren't for our weaknesses, then certainly we would indeed be bold. If you've ever been looked down upon, you know that there are still barriers. There are still those people who might look down on you. There's still their treatment of you uh, that puts a serious curb on our boldness. Well, if that's you, remember, Timothy feels you here. He understands what you're going through, and Paul does too. Now, in the face of fearing people, the the, the world would say what? 
the world might say when it comes to this message, look, it's all in your rhetoric. It's all in the way that you present the word of God, because how you present it at the right angle, at the right place, at the right time, then that person's going to be saved. So you need to work on timing. You need to work on rhetoric. You need to work on powers of logic. That's how you earn a hearing in front of them. That's how you win them over. And so you, the fearful messenger with a so-called powerful message, can draw confidence in your own mental faculties and your own abilities and your own judgment and wisdom, and then you go have at it. But again, Paul knows that, that the minister is a servant of God. And he points fearful Timothy not to his own deep well of human strength, but to the inexhaustible powers of heaven. Did you guys notice that in the passage there? He says, look, you dedicate yourself to the preaching of the word. And to rhetoric and to logic. He doesn't say that. He says you want strength for preaching and for ministry. You draw on the powers of heaven. Look there in verse 13. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. So there what he's talking about is spiritual gifting, divine empowerment, as well as ability. There in preaching the word of God. These things are given by Christ to the church in order to accomplish his will. So in this encouragement to Timothy, it's almost like Christ himself is saying, look, yes, you are an under shepherd of my people. You are a herald of my gospel. Now, don't you ever forget the power of my spirit as you go about fulfilling this task. This is the gift here. It is spirit empowered. Right, He received this gift, this charisma, as it says in Greek. This, this is spirit-empowered. It is a word of God attested. So his, his gifting and his uh, responsibility, his calling, came by a word of prophecy. So that's a word of God attested. And then it's elder-approved. He says, look, all my other people, all the other leaders in the church, they approve of your gift. The, the elders there, they were backing Timothy, saying, yes, indeed, you have been called to this specific test, this task. So this here is supposed to be confidence-inducing, isn't it? Paul here is seeking to come alongside young Timothy and give him boldness, not in himself, but in the power of God. So yes, there might be false teachers. Yes, you might be despised because you're young. But I want you to display the characteristics of God. I want you to devote yourself to the words of God. And I want you to work in the power of God. How's that for confidence? Forget man's power and strength. Why draw from the knapsack of man's power when the heavens are full and available with God's? So if you find yourself fearing man, why draw from your limited battery when you can be drawing from God's which never runs out? That's why Paul brings up this ordination event, right? It's, he's encouraging him to fan into flame the gift that he has. That's what it says in 2 Timothy 1.6. So for you guys, what or whom do you rely on in the tasks that God has given you? So not, not everyone is called to be a preacher, but everyone is called to share the gospel. Not everyone is called to lead a church from the pulpit, but everyone is called to love their brothers and sisters, serve the church, be hospitable. Those who are mature, they're called to, to uh, bless the less mature. We're all called to set an example. We could go on and on. But And in it all, you might be genuinely despised. You may face false teachers, but remember your divine empowerment 
by the Spirit. The Spirit works in all. And that's what we see in Acts chapter uh, 4, right? When Peter was released from jail. You guys remember that? Peter gets released from jail and he goes back to where all of the disciples were, which there were a number because there were hundreds of thousands of Jews who had gone there for the feast of Pentecost and then Passover and then Pentecost. This is what they pray in Acts 4, uh, verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. And it says, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continue to speak the word of God with boldness. That's the empowerment of the spirit there that Timothy was to rely on, not on his own gifts, his limited energy, his limited rhetoric, limited logic, but the very powers of heaven. So we've seen that Timothy, if he is to succeed in ministry, he's supposed to be godly, he's supposed to be committed to the word and in the power of the spirit at all times. Next, thirdly, we see how he's supposed to go about doing these things, how he's supposed to go about being godly and then how he's supposed to go about teaching. It says there, if you want successful ministry, ministry, you're supposed to be watchful. Be watchful. A summary thus far can be found in verse 12. Go ahead and look there. It says, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that your progress may be evident to all. Immerse yourself in them. Practice these things. Be godly. Preach the word. And he says there in 16, keep a close watch on yourself. And on the teaching. You could translate this, keep a close watch. You could translate this, fix your attention on. You can translate this, take pains with these things. But watchfulness here is the key to success. Watchfulness. Some of us wonder, well, how does somebody go about watching himself and his doctrine? Like, what does that practically look like? What's involved in this watchfulness? Well, I think it's actually quite easy to determine what this watchfulness involves by looking at some of the daily things that we find ourselves involved in our lives. So have you guys ever studied an instrument, for example, and you want to become a budding musician? So I studied guitar. I studied the saxophone for 10 years. And so what I did to immerse myself in it was I would be reading jazz biographies of jazz musicians. I'd be listening to songs all the time to see how they actually play those things so that I can play them too. And then I study the words and then I actually try and practice them. There the budding musician cultivates his ability to play the notes. Being watchful. If you guys ever uh, involved in uh, sports, for example, you want to excel in whatever sport you play and you're going to be watchful. You're going to study the philosophy of the game. You're going to see what your weaknesses are, what your strengths are. Even if you do this in the fantasy world fantasy football for example you're going to be studying your players you're going to be studying trades you're going to be studying rebounds free throws steals everything you're going to be immersing yourself in them with the purpose of wanting to win on a much more serious note if you've been newly diagnosed with diabetes what do you do you watch your blood sugar you watch what you put in your body you know, sadly, we know what it means to be watchful in these areas, though they, even, though they, even though they might have little eternal significance. But yet we are so inattentive to the most, most weighty matters in the universe, salvation. But this watchfulness here is of utmost importance. 
So in 15, there Paul says, practice these things. He also says, keep a close watch on these things. Persist in these things. The reason why. Here we get purpose, okay? Be godly. Dedicate yourself to the reading, preaching, teaching of the word. The grand purpose, as you are watchful, he says, salvation. For, there in verse 16, for, by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. The purpose is salvation. And so that fuels the ways in which we are to watch ourselves. Now, if we have a different purpose, if, let's say, our grand purpose in ministering to somebody is, let's say, wanting to get into good graces with them, wanting to gain back favor with them, then you're going to come up with a very different solution. You might teach them what they want to hear at the given time, never really getting to the heart of the gospel. And unfortunately, what that does is that might get you into good graces. It might get them to love you, but it does not get them to love God. Paul's logic is simple here. If you continue in the faith that is growing in Christ's likeness, believing in God's word, sticking to true doctrine, you'll show yourself to be a believer. That's what he means there when he says you save yourself. You show yourself to be a believer through persevering. He says you also save other people. In that, if Timothy, the pastor himself, is teaching and living the life that accords with sound doctrine, then the Christians too are going to continue in sound doctrine. They're not going to wander away into false doctrine or even teach false doctrine like the false teachers were. The end result would be salvation so here watchfulness and perseverance they go together so for you how's your watchfulness going how's your watchfulness going tending to your heart tending to your doctrine doing both is absolutely critical certainly for the pastor certainly for anyone involved in public ministry but for every christian out there unfortunately You know, it is our temptation to tend to what the public sees first. The temptation for the Christian is to tend to what the public sees first. That is maybe our teaching, but then to disregard what God calls of us first character. That is a dangerous place to be in a dangerous place to be in to tend ultimately first and foremost to give our priority to tend to what our to what the public sees first but all the while neglect of what God calls and demands of us first. So tending to your teaching, to the neglect of your heart, is to live in the shadows of hypocrisy. As time passes, all will see the real thing. So tending to your preaching or or your teaching, your evangelism, your Bible study leadership skills, your church attendance, your giving, your personal devotions, your prayer life, your shepherding of your children, the shepherding of your wife, doing all those things to the neglect of your heart is to live in the shadows of hypocrisy. As time passes, all will see the real thing. So in effort to cultivate watchfulness, I have a few recommendations on how we can be watching our life and doctrine. Number one, make time for self-watch. Simply make time for self-watch. What this might look like is is setting aside time to actually be in the word, to examine your own heart. With the same spirit that the psalmist says from Psalm 139 verse 23, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. So do you make time for self-watch? Or would you rather make time to listen to 
the new Triple E CD that came out and read every single lyric so you would be immersed in hip-hop. Now that is important, <laughs> but not as important as immersing yourself in watching your life and your teaching. The second thing, what accompanies self-watch or how the, the first thing that you should use in terms of self-watch is you use the word of God. Use the word of God. Submit yourself to the word of God because it is that that casts light on your soul, right? You, get, you see a more accurate picture of your own life. You see the depths of your sin, how flighty your desires are, and it helps you see how you're prone to wander. But as you do this, don't just stop there and think, I am a worm. What you're supposed to do there after you see the depth of your sin is turn to the grace of God to see the height, the depth, the breadth, the length of God's love for you in Christ Jesus so you're to remember not, not merely that you are sinful, but you're also supposed to remember that Christ's love, his grace is so much greater, binding the brokenhearted. In this pace of life that we have today, where we busy ourselves with Facebook and Twitter, we can neglect self-watch. But here God calls us to watch ourselves and to do so with the word carving out time. Another thing, prayerfully read the Bible. So not only read the Bible, but prayerfully read the Bible. How are you supposed to know how to live according to sound doctrine if you don't know what sound doctrine is here? But when you're praying over the word and hiding it in your heart and meditating on it as you pray those things into your life into, and to, into other people's lives, you hide these things in your heart. You know, there is a... a a very debilitating tendency, a temptation for Christians to cruise on the vapors of other Christian spirituality. It's like, I know these people are godly, so I'm going to go hang out with them and get my fix there, my godly fix. But then when I'm, in, when I'm on my own, you know, I'm, I'm not really doing that. I'm cruising on their spirituality. Or there's another temptation. Let's say, man, I was on fire back in high school or in college, which, you know, was 20 years ago for me. I was on fire then, and the temptation is to sort of cruise on the vapors of my old Christianity that's long past. Really on fire then, which means I must be on fire now, and I therefore am neglectful when it comes to self-watch. But if that's you, remember that at some point in time, your soul will draw to a dead stop. Keep in mind that when that happens, it'll probably reveal the sin that tri tripped you up, and very publicly. Do not be found to have a tag-along spirituality along for the ride, but never really committed to the difficult journey. Make time, brothers and sisters, to read the Word of God. If you don't know what to read, let me encourage you guys to read 1 Timothy. Just read it over and over and over again. <clears throat> uh, and that way you can be nourishing your soul on the same thing that we're preaching through. You can talk about it with everybody else who's thinking about the same thing. So just read first timothy over and over and over again another thing you can do is attend our equip class as we go through how people change so it's a curriculum that shows how the word of god and the gospel actually helps us in our daily struggles with life and sin and those questions today if you need these questions ask jeremy ing for them or he'll post them on a facebook page if you're part of the facebook group uh, but all those questions help us watch our souls 
And then if we know that we struggle with, let's say, a fear of man, well, then we can turn to the word of God and say, okay, I'm just going to do a simple Bible search for fear of men or fear and see what the Bible turns up. So you can go to BibleGateway.com and type in fear or fear of man and then see what comes up and do You can do a mini Bible study through that. Uh, so the equip class seeks to point people to God's word as it helps us in our daily situations. Lastly, enlist others to help you watch. Enlist others to help you watch. God never intended his people to pursue Christ on their own, but rather he intended people to pursue Christ in community. Help, ask others to help you watch your life and be committed to helping others watch their life too. So if, if you don't see a particular need for this, let me ask you guys, let me bring up a few things that I hope will reveal a great need for this. Are you ever afraid to confess your sin? Or is there one particular sin that you are afraid of confessing? If you are afraid, friends, that is the spirits working in you. That's the holy alarm signal that says, I need help, actually. So are you afraid to confess your sin? Are you afraid of bringing up a certain topic? Wondering that if you let people into that door, that closet, that you're really going to be faced with how ugly that is. You ever fearful that you're going to be found out to be who you really are? If you've answered yes to any of these things, friends, you may be living in the shadows of hypocrisy. If you continue living in these things and are not confessing these things, most importantly to God, you are living in the shadows of hypocrisy. Friends, enlist the help of others. Find people you trust. Find people that you know, love you, and talk to them. Ask them to keep you accountable. Ask them to ask you regular questions about whatever it is that you're struggling with. Those are just a few examples of what it looks like to watch our life and doctrine. But I pray that the Spirit would give us power to actually do these things for Christ's glory, knowing ultimately that salvation is at stake here. Well, to conclude, this here is the second part on the signs of successful ministry. And in your own fear, you know that there are any number of possible solutions. But this here is so incredibly freeing, isn't it? It is so simple, isn't it? God's solution. You want to know how to evangelize your friends or how to lead a church, how to bring reform, let's say, how to evangelize your family. If you want reform, God says you work hard You work hard letting other people see the characteristics of God as you train for godliness. You work hard devoting yourself wholly to the word of God, immersing yourself in them, in it. And you do these things watchful, watchfully in the power of God. You see how in the big picture of things, how God does everything for his own glory And how that's not nasty or anything because he's working for his own good there so that he might be seen to be beautiful, supreme, glorious, the master of all things. Here, Timothy is supposed to preach the word of God. He says, you trust in the characteristics of heaven. He says, you trust in the word of heaven and you trust for the divine empowerment from heaven. Do not trust in yourself for these things because you are not sufficient for these things. But God is, friends. If you find yourself struggling with fear, know that God himself is sufficient. And he gives us the divine power. He has given us the divine message. 
and he indeed will bring about fruit in his plan. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you that you are a sovereign God. We recognize, Lord, that that is freeing because if it were up to us, we would be done for. Lord, we thank you that you give us boldness by the power of the Spirit. Lord, we thank you that you bring conviction of the power of the Spirit. Lord, we thank you that you exalt Christ in our life by the power of the Spirit. So, Lord, as we seek to minister to others, whether we are shepherding a church, whether we are ministering to our family, our neighbors, our co-workers, Father, we pray that we would trust in you. And at the same time, we would be diligent in the very things you've called us to do and be. Make us a godly people, we pray. We pray, Lord, that reform here in this church or in our families, ministry, wherever we are. Lord, we ask that what would lead those efforts is godliness. That you would go before us. Your very characteristics. Lord, we ask that we, as we pursue godliness, that we might be a beautiful picture as we display your glory to the world. We pray, Lord, that the world would know more about who you are by the ways in which we live and through the things that we speak. Lord, we pray that our mouths, though they are confused at times, at a loss for words at times, Lord, we pray that you would help us recall the very words that you've given us. May we be devoted to the public reading of Scripture, to teaching and to exhortation and in reliance upon the Spirit. Make us watchful, we pray. Search us. Know our hearts that we might be confessing our sin and trusting in you and your divine empowerment for this task. Lord Jesus, we do indeed ask that you would be glorified in our services and in everything we do, because it is for your glory alone. In your name we pray. Amen.